Hello and welcome to the mystery behind magic. In today's episode, we spoke to Edward Hilsom about Dove Magic, some experiences of him in Variety Act, competitions, and much more. If you want to see where more of Edward's, then you can go to his website, edwardhilsom.com. You can also see him on Instagram, which is just Edward Hilsom. And on his website, he also has his own magic store. So without anything else to say, enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the mystery behind magic. I'm Chanath Kish and today we are joined with Edward. Hello Edward, how are you? Hi Chanath, I'm very well, thank you. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm uh, doing great. Um, So first of all, what got you first interested in magic? Uh, well, I'm sure it's a similar story to you and Robbie and most people listening. I got some magic tricks when I was five or six and I always loved magic and um, I was quite shy and would practice a lot. <clears throat> but I guess the thing that made me a bit different was when I was, I would say seven or eight, I saw Lance Burton performing his Dove Act on TV and I didn't know who he was. I It was one of those clip shows like 50 greatest magic tricks but that image of him making these doves appear just stayed with me and I knew from a very young age that's what I wanted to do so it was a bit of a dream um but over the years I found out who he was and found out a bit more about that world and when I was 15 I got my first doves and I think that was the moment that really changed I guess shaped the rest of my life to this point what got you interested into dove magic? What was it that sort of was like, that's the thing I want to do? So when I saw those few seconds of Lance Burton on TV, it was just beautiful. I'd never seen anything like it. And it felt like real magic. You know, I'd seen a fair amount of magic until that point. Um, and even after then, for the next few years, you know, being a member of the Young Magicians Club at the Magic Circle, I, it's still nothing compared to that image of those doves appearing in midair as Lance did and yeah I didn't matter what else I saw that was still right at the top um so I I don't really know what it was specifically but I think it had something to do with I'd, I'd never seen dove magic performed live so seeing Lance one of the you know greatest dove acts in history I guess it would be quite hard to see anything else to compete with that yeah and um you sort of do like um more classical um tricks as well why do you i guess prefer them um yeah i I don't really think of myself as preferring one style of magic or another i think there's a lot of great magic and certainly looking at the classics you know, they can become modern with the presentation you put on them. Um, So I think instead of trying to start from scratch to create something, you can go back and look at the greats of the past. And, you know, there's lots of treasures in old magic books. Um, I just like great magic. And I I don't really think of something as being old or new. If it's a good magic trick, it's a good magic trick. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's fair enough. And for somebody who wants to, you know, 
uh, because there's so many new releases that you know look mm-hmm. good have really good advertisement you know really um like colorful changes and you can really see and it's you know better for social media but if somebody wants to get into like um something more classical but they want to change it do you have a trick or a book they could get or use um to start that journey i think it really depends on what you want to hear now it's so easy on youtube to look at the great magicians of the past there's so much black and white footage you know being uploaded every day Uh, it's very easy i think to to find videos and then you know likewise it's pretty easy i think to to google and research those things and um there's lots of great old magic books that are very easy to get hold of now on eBay, if not through, you know, magic dealers. So I would recommend just watching as much magic as you can and see what, see what appeals to you and then go down that rabbit hole, you know, explore, explore that magician, explore that trick and find out everything you can about it. Um, And how many doves do you have right now? Right now, I have nineteen doves. Wow. Do you how how do you store them? I guess. Uh, so they live in a big aviary in my garden. Uh, it's about two by two and a half meters, so it's a big walking cage, if you like. Um, and they're living the dream. They're completely sheltered from the rain and. All sides are covered and they have lots of perches, unlimited food, clean water. They have a bath. Yeah, they're very spoiled doves. And um, because you use them as, I'm going to say props, obviously they're like pets to you. Um, but do you have to get any any permission to perform with them in places? Yes, you do. So uh, you need a performing animals license. Um, and it's quite a rigorous process now. Uh, a veterinarian comes and inspects uh, where you keep them. And uh, it's a long interview, really. You have to say what you do with them, how you look after them, and basically a long risk assessment. Um, and yeah, as it should be, they they check everything is in order. And then you get this piece of paper that allows you to perform with them. Okay, yeah. And um, after you have them, so if you, how did you find the trick that you wanted to do? It Was it from um, Lance or did you see something you wanted to create or recreate or perform? Uh, so when I started the Dove Act, it was certainly heavily influenced by Lance Burton and there are still certainly touches of Lance in my act and other, other magicians I saw at the time. So, uh, the ones that I remember from the beginning were Jason Byrne and Greg Frewin, um, Amos Levkovich. They, they were sort of the people I was watching right at the beginning. T- Tony Clark was another influence. And it was taking pieces. And I always remember wanting it to feel like a, a routine. I wanted it to flow. I didn't want it to be a series of tricks. So right from the beginning, I was conscious that the music and the magic should flow nicely and I had mentors that helped me achieve that and 
it was 14 years ago that I started the act and a lot of the magic is very close to what it was 14 years ago um but it's evolved I would say I've changed on stage and the magic has got smoother and it's it's going through another transformation as we speak and how do you make the act flourish so you have let's see a few things you want to perform how do you make them so they you know it's a nice transition between them um well it is thinking about the transition so instead of just doing something with an object and then putting it down and then picking up another object it i you can be as simple as thinking or well, how can that look nicer so as an example um i have a billiard ball routine and then the next thing i do in the act is the silk to rose um so instead of just putting the billiard balls away and then pulling out the stem and a handkerchief the last billiard ball transforms into a silk and that silk is what becomes the rose so that's one example of you know just a tiny little thing can take you on to the next piece in the act instead of it feeling like a full stop and starting again does that make sense yeah yeah no it does yeah so like thinking about the transition how you know yeah definitely and um um when you perform with your doves you do a silent act why mm -hmm. did you choose to do that because a lot of people nowadays you know they want to talk and they feel like they should but why did you decide to go silent when performing your dove acts a lot of it at the beginning was i was seeing silent dove acts you know i i didn't really know there was another way i guess naively when i was a teenager um but also i was quite shy and performing on stage was terrifying to me anyway the thought of talking was even more so so i was very happy not talking and letting the magic speak for itself I, I think you know my influences are as i've said were lance and beautiful silent acts like that and i could see there was the beauty in the magic so it didn't need words added to it yeah yeah i mean yeah i totally understand because when you do a silent act it's you don't tell the story they have to tell it to themselves which you know it's really beautiful and um you talked about um, on the Magicians podcast, you talked about how um, you should get like a photo moment um, mm -hmm. in your act as many as possible. How do you how do you make that photo moment? So I was very lucky to have uh, Joni Spina as a mentor uh, very early on in my in my progress with the act, really. And Joni, for those for those that that name doesn't mean anything to you. She sadly passed away uh, for about five, it might be six years ago now, but it was 2014. She was David Copperfield's artistic director for many years and lead dancer. And that's one thing she would say to me, you know, get those photos. And what it means is, especially for a silent act, but I direct others and mentor others and it, it it's true for any performer I would say not just even magic but it's creating images on stage that you want the audience to remember you know it's it covers so many things it, it makes your magic more interesting it makes the picture more interesting and 
it makes you more creative. So, for example, um, when I produce a dove, I will pause. And all that making a photo really means is imagining the photographer at the back of the room taking a picture. If you want them to take a picture, you need to pause for a moment, right? And it really just gets you to slow down because especially when you're starting out, I know when I'm working on new things, it's something I'm very conscious of. It's very easy to rush, right? And if you're rushing, the audience isn't going to be comfortable because they're a bit on edge and it just sets the wrong tone. So by imagining the photographer at the back of the room, it forces you not just to pause and slow down, but it also gets you thinking, well, how can I change these images? You know, because if there's 10 photos of you smiling, that's not as interesting as 10 photos of you looking different, right? And so it's it's really a technique to um, add more theatre and add clarity to your performance. Uh, absolutely, yeah. And um, how after you, um, how do you put your acts together? So how do you? Is it just I like this trick and I like this trick as well, and I want to you know in, put them together in a way? Or how do you put your acts together? It varies really because the dove act is a different beast, I would say, to the other magic I perform. So I've got I perform two one man theatre shows, and again they were different from each other sometimes i start with the story and then the magic gets added to that story other times it's a trick i like and then i'll work out a presentation around that and and most recently i was working on a brand new effect that came from a dream idea um i was working with with a friend and um it might be easier to do describe it than being uh, yeah it might be easy to to actually tell you what it is um which was we started with the object to impossible location which is a plot that i've always loved but had some issues with like i didn't like taking something valuable from the audience and damaging it or worrying them that it might have disappeared right i didn't want to create that um feeling for the audience so solving the issue of well what is going to vanish and where is it going to reappear? And we ended up with this idea of, well, taking someone's photo from there. You know, everyone takes photos of precious moments. And then, I don't know about you, but I have so many photos on my phone, I forget about them. Yeah. Right? And so if you scroll back through your phone, you find all these amazing memories we forget about them because they're buried on our phones so um instead of vanishing something it just we just came across this lovely idea that you know something we someone already has but they've forgotten about and then where do you make someone's photo appear well a photo frame so it's a routine where i show an important photo in a photo frame that i have and the end result is they hold the photo frame with my photo inside think about their memory open their hand and their photo appears inside the photo frame and they keep it so that just came from taking a classic idea but 
as I think we all probably do if we think about it, there's, there'll be things that niggle you about a certain trick or an effect and just thinking, how can you change this? How can I make that more me? And then um, the hard bit is working out the method, but um, sometimes it happens, sometimes they stay in the notebook, but that, that's one example of a classic effect that became really a core part of my show and of various acts that I perform now. How long would you say on average it will take you to make one of those tra uh, transformation and what, what's sort of your process when you do that? It's, it's really tough to answer that because I don't create a lot of stuff you know if that's creating I I tend to work on the same things for a long time um, so I, I don't know if I really have a process but in terms of creating that and my two shows I have a very good friend and mentor, James Friedman, and we sit down together and work on my magic and his. And like I said, there'll be a long list of tricks that I like and I want to work on and um, we'll have a similar sort of plan with him and his presentations he wants. And he's a bit different because he is a, on stage, he's a pickpocket. Um, so it's a little bit different how we get things ready for his shows. Um, but there's a similar process we follow and that is really Hello? if it's a trick I like it's researching as much as I can different versions of that trick and what I like what I don't like um and then experimenting is it you know it, t it just takes time and we never know how long that will be but th there's really no way to rush that process um so it will be performing once I've got a basic routine together, that's the starting point. So picking the pieces I like from various routines and maybe there, there'll be some moves that we've found ourselves in playing with the props and the ideas. Um, then it's getting on stage and um, if it's me, my magic, he will give me notes. And I have a few other friends who will give me notes and it's a constant iteration really of performing and notes and tweaking and yeah, that, that never stops, to be honest. It will get to a point where I'm happy with it. Um, but even to this day, you know, I will share videos with James and others and um, I'll get notes back. And even if it's a little pause, you know, add a pause here or there or try saying that a line in this way, you know, it can be as small a change as that. But um, I love those tiny, tiny things that make a big difference. Yeah, another example um, James just watched that video of my Dove Act um, on YouTube and you know, he's helped me with my Dove Act for many years but he had a couple of notes for me that he'd never, he had never seen before and it's not something that I had changed but just something that he saw in that moment and I just make that point because you never know when you know, you're going to get a new look on something and even the same person that's seen you perform the same thing for many years can suddenly see something in a different way and that can have a big impact in in the magic yeah definitely and um, going a bit back to dove magic why do you think there are so uh, so many little so little um dove magicians uh i think there's a few reasons um one it's really difficult uh, i'm not saying that to boast but I don't just mean technically, I mean, getting doves and looking after doves is time consuming, you know, 
I love my doves. They are my family. And I think that's the only way you can physically do it. You know, since I was 15, every single day, I fed those doves. I've been checking on them. You know, I'm not there with them every single day, but I worry about them every day. You know, when I went to university, it was a big factor where I can go because I need to get home at least once a week, even though my family are looking after them. You know, they are time consuming, but time consuming in the most amazing way, because as I said, they are my little family. Um, so that's one reason it takes a lot of time to even start before you can get on stage with your doves you need to put you know months if you're lucky but probably years into getting ready into gaining their trust um working out what you want to do and then performing you know it, you really need it, it's it's not something you can just it's not like you can pick up a pack of cards and practice you know you, you need a proper focus to rehearse with the doves and you need a proper place to rehearse and ideally you need a stage so you know you'd hire it similar to performing illusions really you know I talked to my friend Young and Strange about getting into illusions there's not many illusionists because you know it's tough to start and it, it's similar with doves um and also generally that you know people often say well where do you perform there aren't that many places to perform that's kind of true um if you want to do it properly, you know, you need a theatre with proper lights and sound and all the rest of it and dressing room to keep the doves happy. At the beginning, I would perform everywhere. So I'd go to little rooms in the basement of pubs and perform it. Now I'm a bit more selective, but it is true. You need a stage really to to perform and to really make progress with it. Um, so I think they're probably the main two reasons, you know, it's not a simply... It's not simply buying the props and doing it. You, you need to raise the animals and, you know, you, you can you can rush things and do techniques that are, use techniques that are cruel to the animals. But, you know, I'm a big advocator in doing it the right way and um, getting the animals trust and respect. And I think that's the only way it really should be done. And it takes time. And I'm guessing you, well, you have to train them as well, obviously, to do certain things. Um, are they easy animals to train? Some of them are. I mean, it really varies. They're, they're, they're living, breathing animals. So every dove is different. Um, you know, I'm often asked, how long does it take to train a dove? And it's sort of like, how, how long is a piece of string? I think every, every dove can be tamed. Um, training if you want to call it that starts with me standing in the aviary and feeding the doves from my hands from the moment they leave so my doves breed and i i raise the chicks the moment they leave the nest and it is just gaining their trust and it's amazing even from a very young age i'm talking from three or four weeks old some of them are naturally more comfy around me than others and they will be the ones that continue to probably go on stage so it's not forcing them to do something it's naturally it's encouraging their natural behaviors if that makes sense so it starts with just perching them on my finger and then meeting from my hands and then it will go to bringing them inside and getting used to the lights and the sounds and the cage i use on stage and everything is incremental and every step of the way it's just continuing with the doves that are most comfortable 
and slowly encouraging their natural behaviors, especially when you're training them to fly out over the audience and back. It's that's very much, you know, some doves are naturally more inclined to do that than others. It's a training process, but, you know, I make my life easy, I guess, by starting with when I first try, trained them to fly around in a circle and back. I started with eight doves and did exactly the same training day after day. And the three that are now my flyers are the ones that just picked up quickest. And the others, I, you know, are still on stage and very happy, but they just weren't picking it up as quickly. And I'm sure if I spent another few weeks, they would be great flyers. But, you know, why, why go down that path with them when they're not as comfy with it as the others? So it's really just patience and I guess listening, you know, not with my ears, but with my eyes, you know, just seeing who who is comfy with any step of the process and and then encouraging that. Um, do all 19 of your uh, doves uh, go on stage or only a select few of them? No, they don't all. So some of them are very young babies out of those 19. Um, so um, about 10 of them are what I'd call stage ready. Um, so in my act currently, I have four doves in the act. And yeah, some of them are old pros and some of them are newer. Um, but it's something that I realised when I was touring uh, the UK that, you know, it doves need rest when they're performing every day. So that's when I started training more doves than were required for the act, if you like. And also, um, I have occasionally cut down the act on the day if I didn't feel like a dove was feeling up to it or if a dove was tired, you know, I that they're... they're health and safety is the most important thing to me so the the magic really is secondary to are those doves happy and comfy um and that's part of having more doves than are needed for the act so that i can afford to give some of them a rest if they need it yeah and um sort of moving on um you were in the why um why uh, the young magicians club uh, correct Sorry, you crackled there. Can you say that again? Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, you were in the Young Magicians Club, weren't you? Yes, I was. Um, how do you think that sort of um, did you get any help from them, or was there anybody there who helped you with your Dove Act when uh, you first started? So, being a member of the Young Magicians Club, I was a member from when I was about thirteen and started going regularly to the meetings when I was. 14 um it was a huge influence on me i got so much help um it was the first stage i ever performed my dove act on and one person that really stands out in my memory was ali bongo who is a name unfortunately probably not very familiar to your listeners but he was at every single workshop he passed away i think it was early 2009 um but he was just the most extraordinary guy he had an amazing knowledge of every area of magic and he would give me brilliant notes on my act and the silk to rose that I perform in my act was actually Ali's creation so Ali Bongo was a big influence as were the members um you know giving me a bit of confidence really I think at the same time as advice um 
And another one that really helped me was John van der Put, who is better known as Piff the Magic Dragon. He came in and gave direction to any act that wanted it, and I absolutely wanted it. He, he wasn't known as Piff back then, um, but he was one of the first directors I had and gave me some fantastic advice. Uh, so yeah, it, it was an amazing place to be to get professional magicians looking at my act because I'd really put my act together in isolation. You know, I'd had advice from books and videos from Dove magicians, and there were one or two that had helped me. But that was re- when I started performing it at the Magic Circle. Suddenly, all these great magicians were giving me their thoughts, and that was a really important part of getting to that next level. No, yeah, I think the YMC is really good for that of you know getting, uh, you know, professionals helping you as well. Um, so you did a couple of the competitions, and then um, I believe you won uh the G Day competition, um, which uh, um Ali Bongo was actually the theme of it last year. So I think some oh. people will recognize him. So it was a like a special, like a special G Day for him. So. Yeah, I think um I think yeah, a few people will. Um also I think if you search him up there there's probably quite a few videos up of uh, up of him. So yeah, definitely great magician. Um Now look, um how so work do you see competitions as sort of useful or not really useful? So did it help you or hinder you in sort of your creating your act? I think they are extremely helpful, especially when you're starting out. Um, for me, it was a deadline. So, um, you know, I didn't have really any shows in my diary when I was 15. Uh, so the junior day competition became a deadline to get ready for um, as the Young Magician of the Year. So, and even to this day, I enter competitions as deadlines to improve my magic for. and. I would say they're 99% amazing things, but I wouldn't call it a hindrance, but when you care, it can really hurt when you don't win because inevitably, if you enter enough competitions, you know, you're going to lose or not win a fair few. And it's difficult to really say this and hear it and it and really understand it until you have lost competitions. but. The result genuinely does not matter. If you have created an act and as a result of entering a competition, your magic has become better. That is the purpose of the competition. Anything else is a bonus. And I I can tell you, like over the last few years, I've entered quite a few competitions at the Magic Circle and certainly taking the pressure off myself by my only goal really honestly was to make my magic better it just takes that weight off your shoulders you know because you cannot control the result you have no control over that you don't know who the judges are going to be you don't know what they're thinking you don't know who the other competitors are you can't control any of that all you can control is how you perform on the day and there really is no shortcut you know the only way to I think I've only got to the point where I can be comfy and think like that because I've entered so many competitions, you know. Um, 
but that's why I'm trying to say that I know how important how how much you want to win at the beginning, and it is lovely to win a competition, of course, but really what you end up with, win or lose, is your magic, and the more you can concentrate on that and get your magic as good as it can be using the competition for all the right reasons as a deadline as a you know reason to improve it a reason to learn reason to collaborate with others and then do your best on the day you'll get so much more out of it and yeah i can't recommend entering every competition that comes your way because that's when people will see you that's when you grow on stage as a performer but you never know who's going to be in the audience you never know who's going to give you a note you never know who's going to be booking a show in a month's time you know you need to be out there performing uh to perform more and certainly at the beginning it was competitions that gave me all my opportunities yeah no yeah and i yeah and i agree with everything you said but especially that it gives you deadline because um when i joined two years ago but well, i only went to it last year or 2019 and um it definitely gave me a deadline to get something done as well and yeah you definitely do meet a lot of people so i met robbie through that as well through g-day the competition there so yeah it, it yeah it definitely does help um and also you won the close-up of the year award this year january i believe yep the the magic circle close-up magician of the year yes congratulations thank you very much so you do both close-up and stage magic um what would you say is there's quite a lot of differences but what would you say like the biggest differences between them yeah i i started with close-up magic because obviously as i said it's a lot easier to pick up a deck of cards than yeah. get some doves um the biggest difference i would say generally when you're performing close-up magic or performing stage magic is when you're performing close-up magic usually you're an interruption people haven't come to see magic whereas i can't think of one time when i performed anything on stage where people haven't been sat down ready to watch and that is a huge difference and i think something that as a close-up magician is a challenge and you must be respectful of because they aren't there to see you they're having probably a very nice time without you and as i said just be aware that there is more to their day and evening or whatever situation you're in than watching your magic tricks and yeah i, I guess that's the biggest difference i could elaborate if you like <laughs> hey yeah definitely and um what do you think why do you keep um, on with magic? Why do you keep practicing? What? Why do you keep performing? What's what? Do, what do you like most about it? Or you can say a couple of things. What's your favorite things about magic? I think the biggest thing is the feeling, giving that the gift of real magic to an audience, and that might sound a bit pretentious, but the the magic I've been doing re most recently i've created recently is really incorporating the audience as a vital part of the magic so not only having the magic happen in their hands or with their things but leaving them with something 
leaving with them with something truly magical, giving them a gift. And, you know, I, I know from people saying to me weeks, months and years later that it has had a really meaningful impact on them. And that to me makes it just so worthwhile, you know, that's something I have done or given them has made them feel that way. Um, so that that is the magic I really love doing right now. But even with something like my Dove Act, uh, which I really go in and out of love with, um, you know, I have Why? people say I, I've never seen. Well, I think I've been doing it so long. I mean, this the first time I I sort of went out of love. Uh, with it was about four years in when I had lost the Young Magician of the Year competition um, and I, I'd realised like I'd only really performed it for magicians you know I hadn't performed it for real people in inverted covers um, and I was I spent another few years just doing competitions and magic conventions and yeah it was an amazing experience to have but it sort of felt a bit pointless and at the same time, I was already starting to come up with some more what I consider meaningful magic that I've sort of just described, uh, more storytelling, narrative-based um, magic that can have an impact on an audience. And that just felt like it connected with me more at the time. And then, and then an amazing opportunity came along, the Champions of Magic Tour, which was a show that I toured with for a number of years. And I suddenly started performing the Dove Act with an amazing production show around me and for an audience that had never seen anything like it. And then it suddenly found it's a new place and a new place for me. And I realized it was giving an audience something they'd never seen before. Um, so it's funny that it's not that there's a specific type of magic I like or a specific place I like performing. I, I think as long as I feel like what I'm doing connects with the audience in any way, that's what I really love, trying to create that connection and make that connection as meaningful as possible. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, so have you, um, oh, I don't, so at the end of next year, um, if, if you are drastically exceeding your expectations, expectations in magic, what do you think you would be doing? <laughs> but... um, that's really tough you know because I, I think I set myself quite high expectations as it as it is so I, I don't know how I would exceed them. I mean I've entered FISM the European FISM um, which was meant to happen this year but fingers crossed will happen next summer um I guess exceeding my expectations would be winning that, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, that feels a million. To do close up or stage? Both. So I will be entering with a close up act and my dove act. Um, so exceeding my expectations, your question would be well, I guess I would win both of those. And um, I don't know. This year has been such a strange year. Like if I. If I can just be performing, I will be over the moon. So, you know, really the goal of FISM partly is the deadline, as I've already described. But 
it's also a shop window so it would be a dream to for some people to see me there that would like me to perform at their conventions and start some new journeys who knows and be performing those acts that I really love to perform would you say deadlines are sort of the most important thing that sort of carries you through magic and like helps you improve just having that deadline 100 percent, yeah so whether that's a new show a competition uh well yeah i guess there'd be only two really it's always a show or a competition that you know i've said i'll do something for um yeah i, I think magicians are generally quite lazy and i include myself in that um laziness and you know a never-ending you know there's no such thing as the perfect magic performance i think so that never-ending goal of achieving that are what keeps us going but i think for me and everyone i know unless there is a very firm deadline you know things don't really happen <laughs> yeah yeah and um so let, going back to doves again um how would you so you said you in the beginning you said you need either a stage or like a big room i guess to practice in how does the sort of practice um order not order but like how do you practice um so before i got my doves i was practicing the act um so you know you can do everything apart from producing the doves without the doves and even then you know you can you can learn how to make a dove appear without having a dove. And that is by using socks <laughs> instead of the doves. So you, you can do pretty much all of it without having the doves, except producing the doves. So I, I assume you're asking the question in case there's anyone interested in learning. The, the advice yeah. I would give would be to, to watch as much as you can. Now there are so many books and videos, get everything you can. There'll be lots of contradicting advice. Um, but like I said, just get as much as you can, absorb all the information and start doing it. Don't worry about getting the doves. Do everything else. And you can put an act together without having, and, you know, I, I put my dove act together without having the dove. Of course, it might change when you actually get the doves. But the reason I say that is the doves suddenly are a, you know, a life-changing commitment. When you get those doves, they take over your life, and you need to realize that before you before you jump in. So do all the research. You can practice and practice and practice without the doves, um, and then when you actually have the doves, it is patience and love and respect for the animals. So even now, you know, I would only practice with them twice maximum, like doing the act with them a day um just not to tire them out um so socks are really important to substitute and um it, sorry i've lost my thread the question was how do you put it together with the doves is that right yeah 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 or how do you practice with doves but yeah yeah so once you have the doves, it is just not pushing them too much. As I said, you know, every animal is different. And 
um you know you can tell when an animal's getting tired so it's doing little and often i would say um not pushing them too much but having a routine so when i started my dove act every single day i'd come in from school do my homework and practice the act you know i'd do the whole act once through with them um as it would be on a show day so preparing everything uh, getting the doves ready producing them in the same way they would be if i was as if i was doing the act in front of an audience and then letting them go home back in the aviary afterwards so it's i would say creating a routine for you as much as the doves is really important um yeah and um i've just um forgot um robbie should also be back as well and then we can edit this little bit out um sure just us yeah robbie yeah i can hear you can you hear me yeah <laughs> oh okay good um <laughs> um so we were just talking Finally. about sort of practicing and i uh, guess with doves and how to get into it as well um don't know how much of that you heard um if there's anything i didn't go into then please say because it, it's such a big you know it's something i've been doing for so many years there might be something really important that you have on, in your mind that i haven't mentioned so please stop me and i can go back <laughs> if there was anything that i didn't go into it as much as you wanted um, i think that's well i don't want to repeat anything because i might ask questions that you guys have already right, kind um... of gone over can i ask i mean i mean no rush so like if sorry i, I just want to say if no, no, you're worried about double asking questions i'm in no rush so i'd rather you're happy that i've answered everything you want me to answer than you know and then you can worry about that in the edit <laughs> if you don't mind doing that yeah. uh, okay no, yeah that's fine done. uh have you done edinburgh fringe yet okay then perfect we can go, yeah. go on well, that, uh, I guess, before we, we do can i just and ask something a fresh start um and then we can go into that if that's all right with everybody. Um, are doves expensive? Because, you know, for somebody trying to get in, obviously you have the food, the vets. Um, are they expensive to get? So the way I normally answer this question is financially, no. But in terms of your time, extremely. <laughs> um, so they're hard to find unless you know me. <laughs> because uh, my doves breed and I have become you know sort of the breeder of doves but you know I'm not really interested in money from someone I'm interested in knowing they're going to a good home um, so it I mean you know that it's more expensive than buying a deck of cards to get an Avery set up and doing everything properly but once you've got their home set then financially no you know it's a big bag of dove seed once a month um and you you mentioned the vet that's it's a really interesting thing because you know often i've had dove magicians ask me like oh is this okay or is that okay and as much as i can help a little bit you know no one knows more about them than you know an avian vet or a vet that knows more about birds so 
you know, I, I always recommend if you're worried, go to a vet. And it's an amazing thing, actually. I've I've been to two or three vets. I've got a lovely vet now, and he's a regular vet, not an avian vet, not a vet that specialises in birds. But he loves birds, and often he won't even charge me. He's so interested in seeing them, and you know, he um, he genuinely, you know, most vets, I think, is true, genuinely care about the animals, right? And it's an unusual animal for him to see. And he genuinely loves helping. And I, I don't know if magicians with doves don't go to vets because they think it's expensive or something, but, you know, it, it's not really. And if you genuinely love those animals, then that shouldn't matter. But just from my experience, you know, if if you find, you know, if you go to the right person, and actually, you know, I didn't go looking for this vet. It was just my local vet. You know, he was very interested and has been probably the most important person in my <laughs> dove magic life than anyone else. What are the dangers of ah, doves? That's a very interesting question. Can I ask why you're asking that? What made you aware of it? Well, I don't know, it's just because, I guess, similar topic, um, and I, I think I've heard some stuff like that before, uh, of you can get diseases, so I was just wondering, I guess, yeah, so, you have to take and other things. As um, well. Basically, there's a dust that they produce. It's a combination from their, from their poop and from their feathers, the dander in the feathers, that is a very fine powder that is basically what keeps their feathers clean, it keeps them white. Um, but this dust you can breathe in and it gets into your lungs and it can be very very bad so um i believe it was discovered from people that kept pigeons their whole life so you know people race pigeons and um if you have a lot of pigeons which you know doves come from the same family um and you're breathing in this dust as i described they found it in pigeon fanciers that they had lungs full of this dust, basically. So it, it can lead to very serious breathing problems. Um, luckily, it's something I was aware of from a few years in. But that's why I really would not recommend keeping doves inside. Because um, you know, even when I'm in a theatre for a day, I will be aware the dressing room is suddenly becoming harder to breathe in. Uh, because these tiny little birds produce so much of this dust. Um, and that's why it's really important to really have them outside. Um, it's this difficult combination. Doves do not like draft, so you do need to seal off the aviary as much as you can from the draft. And that means that this dust, as I'll call it, will be contained. So the other thing um, that has become a bit normal now in today's world is wearing a good mask, a good ventilator. but a proper ventilator, not just a, a fabric mask. So if I'm spending any long amount of time with them, I will wear a proper ventilator. Uh, so when I'm cleaning the, the aviary, the cages, I will have a pretty intense uh, breathing mask um, to hopefully stop me getting quite sick, yeah. Uh, and, and what does the dust do to you? Do you 
So basically, if you imagine this very, very, very fine dust will slow, as you breathe it in, it slowly builds up in your lungs. So the more, the more you breathe it in, the more your lungs will fill up. And that basically means the capacity of your lungs will decrease. So the amount of oxygen you can take into your body will decrease over time. And as more of this dust fills up your lungs, suddenly, you know, the worst thing that can happen is you need a lung replacement. And there was a dove magician in the States, David Oliver, who had a double lung transplant and thankfully made a full recovery. But, you know, that was one of the big warning signs to me when I heard about his story that, you know, he had this problem because his doves, I believe, were in his house in his basement, I think. And um, he wasn't aware of this issue. So it is a very, very serious thing. So anyone considering getting the doves, it's, you know, feel free to get in touch with me and I can help with, you know, the best practices and how to how to reduce your risk to it. But it's a very serious health concern, yeah. And then I think um, if we can talk about the Edinburgh uh, Fringe Festival as well um, now. So... Uh, how did you go from developing your magic from a genie in 2015 to another act in 2019, Silver? And what improvements do you think you made throughout that time? So the journey actually started a year and a half before Genie in 2015. Uh, when I started working with James Friedman, who I've already mentioned as my main collaborator. Um, so the timeline was I graduated from university 2013 and in that autumn um, James is someone that was really a hero of mine still is a hero but has become a good friend of mine Um, and I actually got in touch with him because I started producing variety shows at my university and he very kindly came and we sort of uh, well we became friends from that and he was interested in what I was doing after university. And long story short, he ended up giving me a space in his office and we would collaborate. And the first big project we did is he asked me to co-write and direct his one-man show, which was going to the Edinburgh Festival in 2014. So that's why it was important. That's why I mentioned that. So that was my first experience of Edinburgh, was writing and directing James. Um, and it was just, you know, I'd always heard about the Edinburgh Festival, but, I, you know, nothing can repay you for being in that bubble of 4,000 shows with all these performers. It was just this bubble of creativity and also going on this extraordinary journey with my hero, James, and seeing his show progress. Um, so I'll describe a bit more about that because it's relevant to my show. Um, so every day we would do the show. I would film the show from the back of the room and also do the tech for the show. And then after the show, we'd get back to the flat and we'd watch the show back and I'd give him my notes and we'd work on things together. So every day the show was getting better. Um, and you could the beautiful thing about Edinburgh is you can see the results immediately the next day, right? You get the audience response. You can see the audience responding more. You can see the show tightening and 
it's just an amazing whirlwind over a month seeing the show get better, better, better. So on the way home from uh, the Edinburgh Festival in 2014, James said, well, the, the sort of the idea was I would do my show next year. So we started brainstorming, what's the show going to be? And on that journey in 2014, James had the idea, well, why don't you make three wishes come true? And I don't want to spoil James's show, but there was a, a line like that, that wouldn't it be cool if you could da 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 da. And when we had that for James, we knew that was going to be a hell of a show. And um, it was the same thing as soon as, you know, I, rem I remember vividly, we were just leaving Edinburgh and James said, well, wouldn't it be cool if you could make three wishes come true? I was like, yeah, amazing. And also not knowing, not having any idea how we would achieve that. That's how you know it's, it's worth pursuing and it's a good idea, right? <laughs> Uh, so we didn't have any method, uh, but that was the beginning of my Edinburgh. So um, the next year was spent um, working out how we would achieve that. And then when we were in Edinburgh, it was a similar process. So doing the show, James was my director and co-writer and also helped with um, the technical side of the show. Um, and every evening I'd watch the show back and we'd make, you know, I'd have James's notes and incrementally making show better and better. Um, so that process was pretty similar to last year, the Edinburgh Festival. The only difference is we both had a show last year. So I think we'd, we'd both acknowledge we sort of bit off a bit more than we could chew because we are both very driven and want to put a lot of time into our shows. Um, but I would say the main difference between my two shows was in 2015, Genie, the show where I granted three wishes, um, I was really finding my feet on stage. So I had performed on stage a fair amount uh, with my Dove Act and other pieces on the Champions of Magic tour, but I wanted to become a storyteller. So I was really learning how to speak and deliver a script on stage. Um, so I was still very early on in that process. Whereas for Silver, last year, the show I took to the Edinburgh Festival, I, I still felt like I hadn't got there. I, I, you know, and so my goal really was to become comfy speaking and telling a story and you know, delivering a narrative on stage. And um, I really feel like I achieved that. You know, I'm still learning and still improving that. But going back to my my goal is really to connect with an audience and emotionally. Um, I'd never had the response from an audience anything like I'd had from performing my show Silver, and I was amazed actually after the Edinburgh Festival I performed at the International Brotherhood of Magicians competition, uh, not competition, sorry, convention. I closed the convention with Silver and I was terrified because I wasn't sure if magicians would connect to it because it wasn't, I mean, I was going to say there wasn't a lot of magic. There is a fair amount of magic, but the magic really isn't the focus of the show. It's the story and the strength for me comes in the why I'm doing what I'm doing and without telling you the full story of the show. And there's a couple of moments that are really powerful, not because of the magic, but because of um, the message and the gift I'm giving to someone on stage. And it got an amazing response from an audience of magicians at a magic convention too. So for me, it just really confirmed my feeling, I guess, of, you know, 
the ultimate goal is to connect emotionally with an audience and you know magic alone doesn't really do that you know it's the story and the narrative and becoming a good storyteller I think is the best way to achieve that goal and so that that's a very long way of answering I hope your question yeah and um I have a, uh, two questions so how do you become a storyteller or how do you become a better storyteller I should say um reading stories and watching stories I would say is the first thing so I love going to the theatre watching musicals reading watching films you know that I think the worst place you can look is magic because there are some fantastic magicians who do it you know the, the first ones that come to mind are you know David Copperfield Darren Brown I would also say Teller is an amazing storyteller uh, without even saying a word but if you watch him hopefully you'll appreciate what I mean but these people are all influenced you know they would say themselves by much more than magic and I guess early on I'd only really had magic which made it very difficult for me to become a storyteller right um so I guess what I'm trying to say is having a world view having a view is the first part of telling a story because it has to be authentic to you it it doesn't have to be real real life it doesn't have to be a true story but it has to be something you genuinely believe if you're going to say those words um and in terms of my journey and what i do now it's for me it was quite a challenge to speak clearly and comfortably on stage um you know, again, that comes from being a silent performer for most of my performing career and, you know, fairly introverted in everyday life. So learning to speak, uh, you know, just theatrically, that was, you know, working with, a, there's one person I have who's a, a director and a an actor um, who helped me with some techniques just to um you know get my voice on stage and and relax really I, I think that was the biggest one you know I think most of us when we start we we sort of put on a persona even if it's only a tiny bit like our our friends and family can tell that's not how we speak in in real life right um so the most important thing especially with my show silver was being authentic and being me and I think that's the hardest thing to do so strip back everything you you, you sort of develop, I guess this persona becomes a bit of a shield, right? You know, when you're doing magic, you, you're hiding behind the magic a lot of the time. And so for me, it was getting rid of all this armor and just trying to be me being, um, you know, speaking how I would speak to my family and my friends. And, you know, I did feel really, really, really vulnerable. It's scary, you know, and I set myself the challenge. So the other way, you know, if I want to become better at telling a story, then tell a story, you know, without the magic. So at the beginning of my show, very consciously, first five or six minutes, I do no magic. It's just me standing there telling a story. Um, so I guess, you know, that is me throwing myself at the deep, in the deep end. You asked, how do you become a better storyteller? <laughs> it's by doing it, you know. And the truth is, you know, it's still something that I'm getting better at. But I know I'm better now than I was at day one of the Edinburgh Festival because I did it every day. And I listened to the audience and I listened to my director. Um, 
but yeah to get better you need to do it and you need to really you know not fail necessarily but you need to go through that stage of not being very good at it to become good at it right um so it is scary but it's very rewarding too you sort of touched on um a bit earlier on you put together a variety show um in uni how how did that go so and um, why did you put it together first so i put it together because um so this is going back to 2010 2011 i was performing my dove act a fair amount and i was getting to perform with amazing performers you know not just magicians but comedians and ventriloquists and you know everything we see as magicians right going to magic conventions and watching youtube and i realized that my friends didn't have any idea of this type of act and these talented people you know they were seeing britain's got talent um pardon me let me say that again all my friends were seeing were these acts on britain's got talent and especially back then britain's got talent was a very different place they were only really showing singers and bad variety acts you know there might be one or two that got through but the variety acts on those shows were there to be laughed at so i was very frustrated that i was working with all these extremely talented people and my friends had no idea what variety really meant so uh i wanted to show people my age what variety entertainers were uh so that was the main reason behind it and also it became extremely rewarding to be able to call james friedman right and ask him to do his pickpocket act and martin taylor who the hypnotist who inspired darren brown at university and you know suddenly i was bringing together all these heroes of mine and they were just so much fun um so that's why i did it um the goal was only really to do one show but genuinely they were so, you know that first show was so well received and the acts were so happy to be involved because i'd created this environment where it was fun you know it was very straightforward that was the other thing that you know from my limited performing experience i realized there were fun shows are not so fun shows and actually it's not that difficult to make it a fun show for the act that's just creating a you know a nice environment you know feeding them giving them drinks everyone you know being easy to work with that's all you really need to do and, and giving them a nice audience you know it wasn't the best stage it was a little bar in a student's union but it was the right attitude by everyone involved and that's why it worked and so yeah those shows became quite a success and we ended up doing a couple at the magic circle and yeah it was a pleasure to really I guess, share this true variety entertainment with with a new audience so i started not really wanting to be a producer sorry going back to the end of fringe what do you think just, just to finish on that i no, 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 no. I, I didn't I start it thinking I want to be a producer, yeah, yeah, but yeah. I just sort of fell into producing, which to me was, you know, just asking heroes and talented friends to get together and creating a nice environment for everyone. And that formed, you know, my company called Love Variety, which was formed in 2014. And 
every show I've been part of and, you know, taken to the Edinburgh Festival has been through that. And we've done a few other things too, which is which is another, a story for another day. Going back to the Edinburgh Fringe, what do you think drives the performers to actually perform there? Do you think it's the entertainment, money, or guessing? I think it's probably a combination of those three. You know, I, I can only talk for myself and the few performers I know well there. Um, I would say generally it's probably not the money because most don't really make much money. <laughs> um unless you're quite famous or um yeah most don't really make much money up at the festival so the reason i go and um the performers i've worked closely with go is really the experience so to work new material you, know, you come back with a show that is much better than it was day one of the fringe because you've worked it if you've done the work properly and you know actually focused on your act and your show and made it better um yeah i would say that's the main reason yeah and there, there's different elements within that so for example it was slightly different my first and second shows i had slightly different goals you know my first show was really it, it was to create a show and find my feet as i said and the second show i had a bit more focused a bit more focused goals of you know becoming a storyteller and also wanting a show I could travel with that was a big thing because I was getting more and more opportunities and I didn't really have much material that I could get on a plane with you know I needed cargo <laughs> to go and do a show in the states uh, which seemed crazy so um yeah second time around as well as the things I've already mentioned it was wanting new material that I could take hand luggage but fill the space and you know that is related to the storytelling element because if you can create theater with your words then you become less reliant on having big props so the reason for going varies with performer but i think most of the time it's most people go with a brand new show that they know by the end of the fringe will be a lot better than it was day one Yeah, thank you so much. And I think you know, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much, um, Edward, for, for coming on. We really appreciate it. And uh, thank you so much, everybody at home listening. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you.